turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And I have a confession to make. I, we're, we're, we're celebrating the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. And we're celebrating it by preaching a sermon series on the doctrines that grew out of the Reformation. We mentioned that last week. Last week we talked about Scripture alone. And this week I really struggled because um, this, the sermon this week is on faith. Faith alone, one of the doctrines that grew out of the Reformation. And this doctrine of faith alone is kind of part and parcel of what it kind of means to even be a Protestant. Um, and so I wrestled as I as I meditated on how to approach this, because I feel like a lot of us, when I thought about people here in this church, I thought about people who have probably heard a sermon like this, or some formulation of this doctrine, thousands of times. And it's good, because it's biblical, we need to hear those things, but the last thing I wanted to do is get up here and give you, you know, three reasons why we're justified by faith and not works, you know, put everybody to sleep didn't want to do that. Um, and so um, I wrestled with, with how to approach this. And I wanted to be faithful to the scriptures. And not only that, but consult a lot of different resources. People who not only believe this doctrine, but who don't believe this doctrine, who are somewhere in the middle um, in terms of looking at all the, the biblical data, if you will, to really get a handle on this. So I think we have a text that, that helps us um, and launches us into this discussion and gets us off on the right foot um, that grounds us in the right context. Um, and so, Romans chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 25. It'll be up on the screen. You can read in your Bible or on your phone. You can read up on the screen with me. So, hear the word of God. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what, do this, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quotation of Genesis 15 and 6. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due, or what he's owed. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, quoting Psalm 33. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, Abraham was counted righteous. He received the sign of circumcision... Then, as a seal of the righteousness that he had, he already had, by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised with the righteousness so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. I'm going to read that verse again. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, this is why he had faith. He was convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the unction of your Spirit. We pray, O oh God, that our hearts and minds would be opened moved, empowered, Lord God, that you would help us to have vision, to truly see your message to us, your love for us, and the power demonstrated here in these passages. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. That's a long passage. Sometimes it's good for us just to read the Word of God. I don't know about you, but I enjoy hearing the Word of God. And for me, the Word of God is not just a means to an end. It, the Word of God is good in and of itself. It's just good to hear the Word of God. I like reading it. Well, today, most of the global Christian church is Gentile. In other words, not a Jewish heritage. But that wasn't always the case. There was a time when the church was mostly Jewish. Most of you are Gentiles, and we actually have a couple... Jews here in this congregation. Larry was raised Jewish. Steve uh, in the back was uh, was raised Jewish. My mother is Jewish. I grew up celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah. 
um, sometimes the other holidays too. Um, but in the first century, the entire church was Jewish. All of Jesus' followers, initially, almost all of them were Jews. And they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Hebrew prophets and the law of Moses. For all intents and purposes, Jesus was uh, um, Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures, a perfect continuity of the Jewish religion, for all they knew. But as the church began to grow, and as the, the borders of the church uh, reached beyond Jerusalem and Israel, and Paul the Apostle, who was an apostle to the Gentiles, Gentiles started to come in, there was this conflict that emerged. And the conflict that emerged was the question, who can really be a part of this? The promises had always been to the Jews who were circumcised and they kept the law of Moses and they, they kept kosher and the dietary laws and they kept the Sabbath and all these things. And the question started to become, can the Gentiles really be a part of this without becoming Jewish? Can the Gentiles really get on, really get in on the promises made to this people of salvation and deliverance without becoming what we are. And this is the tension that informs Paul's writing here in Romans and most, much of his ministry. Much of, in fact, almost all of Paul's ministry, um, and Paul's ministry is huge. He says a lot of things in his 13 epistles. But two epistles primarily deal almost exclusively with the tension between Jew and Gentile relationships. And that's Romans and Galatians. In fact, when we talk about faith alone, what usually precedes that phrase is justification by faith alone. And that word justification is found almost exclusively in Romans and Galatians. And the reason is because in those two books primarily, they're dealing with the tension between how the Gentiles and the Jews can be one people. Because for 14 centuries at least, 18 to 20 centuries, if you go back to Abraham, they have always been separate. God's chosen people were the Jews, and then there were the Goyim, right? The Gentiles, the rest of the nations who didn't obey the law of Moses, who didn't believe in the God of Israel, they worshiped other gods, they, they, they lived an entirely different life. But the question looming over the text was, did Gentiles, in essence, need to become Jewish to become right? Focus on that word right. Did Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be right with God? Enter the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now the language of justification that we're used to today, I just mentioned, is found almost exclusively. Now it's found in 1 Corinthians, also found in James, but just in passing. But it's dealt with extensively in Romans and Galatians. And the reason it's dealt with in those two books is because of the discussion about whether Gentiles can be a part of the covenant. And the word justification is a binary word. We might think, well, justification, salvation, reconciliation, it's all synonyms. They're not. They all kind of bleed into each other, but the word justification is not a mere synonym for salvation. Justification falls under the category of salvation, which falls under the category, you could say, of reconciliation, and it all falls under the category of union with Christ. And that's a lesson for another day. But justification serves a particular purpose in this context. What Paul is trying to do is he's explaining, using a word that
God's sight, they're in. You're either in or you're out. There's no question here. And so Paul uses these ideas and these words of justification, this language, to communicate to his largely Jewish Christian audience in the book of Romans. There were Gentile Christians in Rome also. In fact, the book of Romans is broken down. The first, the first eight chapters, the first eight chapters is Paul explaining to Jewish Christians how the Gentiles can be justified. Chapters 9 through 11 is Paul explaining to the Gentile Christians what's going on with the Jews. God will one day restoring at least a remnant of Jews to the covenant because on the surface, many of them have rejected Jesus. And this whole tension over who's in, who's out, the Jews good, the Gentiles bad, gets to the point in chapter 4, starts in the very end of chapter 327, where Paul really challenges the Jewish Christians and recognizes that there is a heart that is lifted up in boasting. If you if you've, if you've read Romans chapter 3, he says, where then is any cause for boasting? Is it in the law? No. And so he focuses here in verse 1, and it says, and this is, this is actually my own translation, so I've put, I've put it somewhat in my own paraphrase. It's faithful to the text, verse 1. This is what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says. What did Abraham, our natural forefather, discover? See, because if he was right in God's sight, because of his works, he'd have something to boast about. But God won't allow that. Abraham is this paradigm and example, this paradigm example of obedience to the law. And so, Paul talks about Abraham because as far as the Jews are concerned, Abraham is this perfect model of obedience to God. You think about being righteous, about what it means to be an ideal Israelite. Well, who do you point to? You point to Abraham. Abraham was this uh, perfect, obedient man whom God chose truly because he was righteous. Right? God looked at all these different people and said, Abraham is a righteous person in the mind of some people during Paul's day. But Paul is actually, he wants to show something different. He wants to demonstrate um, that Abraham is made right with God not because of his obedience to the law. Now you think, those of you, wait a minute, how could anybody think that Abraham was obedient to the law? What's the problem with that? What's the dilemma? The law hadn't been given for another 400 years. I know, I know something about this. You probably didn't want to shout it out as opposed to turning to Have security escort you out for But the law didn't come about for another 400 years, so how could Abraham be considered faithful to the law? Well, most people in Paul's day, when they think of Abraham, when they thought of Abraham, they thought of his obedience, they thought back to Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to take your only son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him as an offering to me. And we all know the story. Abraham obeyed. Abraham obeyed God. He went up to the mountain, raises the knife, and you know the angel intercedes and tells him to do the lad no harm. Right? There's a ram in the bush. We all know the story. And so that's what Jews were thinking of when they were thinking about the righteousness of Abraham. But Paul does something different. He quotes not Genesis 22, he quotes Genesis 15. 
And he says that um, Abraham, well, let me, let me read verse 3. You know the scriptures. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, not Genesis 22. Abraham believed God, and the credit of righteousness came to Abraham not because he was willing to take Isaac up on the mount, but simply because he had faith in God. Now, I typically don't like to get bogged down in heavy word studies, but I think for our purposes this morning it's important to look at both the word counted and the word righteous. Now, in Hebrew and Greek, the word counted means reckoned. Today we use the word differently, right? We think of Westerns, you know, I reckon. You know. But in the Bible, it's used differently. Um, it's an accounting term. Something was credited to Abraham's account. Right? If you buy something, you go back to the store and you return it. They say, okay, we've made the adjustment and um, we've credited your account. That means you have a positive balance, right? Return that sweater, or those shoes, or the you know that part for your car, and they put it back on your card. And your account is credited, which means the money comes back to you. It's an accounting term, and the word for righteous is the same as the word justify, but it's hard to translate exactly. So in the Greek, and this is riveting stuff, right? In the Greek. Uh, righteous and justify actually come from the same Greek word, the Greek cognate. They're just used in either noun or verbal forms. And it's the same word, but because English uh, doesn't always have the exact interpretation of ancient languages like Greek and Hebrew, we have to choose different words to articulate different things. The English language is a um, an amalgam of Norman French and Anglo-Saxon. And so the word justify comes from uh, the French, and the word righteous comes from the Anglo-Saxon word. And so depending on how it's being used, and it's tough because it's not, it's not an exact science. You have to make decisions about what words you're going to, to use to um, translate. But the confusion comes over the fact that to justify has a judicial and a legal aspect to it. But here's the thing. Being made right with God is not so much about a verdict in a law court as much as it is about being brought into a relationship with God. So justify can seem like a cold transactional term that relates to uh, a legal verdict, whereas um, righteous, or being made right, Sounds like it's the restoration of a relationship. I'm not privileging righteous over justify. I'm simply saying that when you come to the text and you read those things, it's important to recognize that there is both a legal declaration of innocence and a relationship between sinner and God being restored. The point here is this, that Abraham, far from being accepted by God because of his obedience to the commands, was brought into the right relationship with God, because according to Genesis 15, when God made certain promises to Abraham that I'll make your name great, and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea, and in you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed, 
decision in his mind that God was trustworthy, that God could be trusted, that God was to be believed. He had faith. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. That God was who he said he was. Now for this, for all of us, um, we, we think, you know, especially if we run up in a Christian culture with a lot of Christian influences, we think, yeah, but, you know, for Abraham, who was a Chaldean in living in southern Iraq, and his father was an idol maker, and he ran his father's, you know, idol shop. You walk into the market bazaar, and there's, you know, someone selling, you know, dates and pistachios, and someone selling idols. And Abraham's father was the idol maker, and Abraham, you know, said, you know, this one is 20 bucks, this one's 40 bucks. How much for the small idols? Five bucks, four bucks. And God calls him and says, get up from your father's house and from your own country and your kindred to a land that I will show you and I will be your God. To hear that Abraham says, okay, it's mind-blowing. That's just mind-blowing. Right? We just, we, we just take it for granted. Of course you believe God. Who wouldn't? Who doesn't want to? I believe God. But for Abraham, right, this is a big thing to believe. It doesn't mean that somehow our faith is any less valuable. Just trying to enter us into the context of what's being said here and what it meant that Abraham would be God. He believed God. He had faith in God. He believed that God was aligned. The righteousness credited to Abraham is by faith, and contrary to the popular opinion of Jewish Christians in Paul's day, it was not the result of anything he had done, circumcision or otherwise. And by implication, if Abraham cannot boast, then no one can. Makes sense. If Abraham can't boast, right? Paul is challenging the idea of boasting against the Gentiles. Right? We remember Jesus in the conversations that he got into with the Pharisees. When Jesus in John chapter 8 reveals that he had come from the Father, and his message was from the Father, and everything he did was in obedience to the Father, what did the Pharisees say? Don't challenge us. We're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus in John 8, I think it's around 37, verse 37, says, I know you're sons of Abraham, but not really. Because if you really were, you would do the words that, that, I, that you hear me speaking. Your father is the devil. You know, Jesus is tough sometimes. And so there's this idea that we're righteous because we're the sons of Abraham, and Abraham obeyed the law, and so do we, and our circumcision proves it. The Gentiles, of course, weren't circumcised. Not even the Gentile Christians. And so the first thing we see, the first thing I hope we see this morning, is that what counts with God has nothing to do with works, whether law or any other sort. Right standing with God is by faith. What counts before God has nothing to do with works or the law or any other type of social capital. Ethnic heritage, lineage, family influence, money, power, reputation, nothing. Right standing with God is by faith. And in verse 4, Paul illustrates this for us in verses 4 and 5. With somebody says, for a worker... Pay is not a matter of a gift, but obligation. Again, this is my paraphrase, and I think it's faithful to the text. For a worker, pay is not a matter of gift, but an obligation. Which is to say that 
When your boss pays you, you don't say, oh, you're so gracious. Thank you. And how, you know, how magnanimous and generous you are. You don't say that to your boss. He owes you. Right? He doesn't pay to assume. And right to sell. There's a contract. There's a, there's a work relationship there. A worker who works doesn't consider his wages a gift from God. Excuse me, a gift from the employer. It's what he's owed. It's what he's due. And so gift, by contrast, excuse me, pay is contractual, calculable, and generally impersonable. When the money is deposited into your account from your employer, there's not a little nice letter usually, hey, you know, Bob, good job. Can't wait to see the barbecue. I mean, it's just, it's a personal. It's what you're owed. It's what you're owed. But a gift, by contrast, is surrounded by sentiment. There's emotion and feeling and relationship there. We've got a gift maybe from an employer or a gift from someone else. Christmas gifts are a perfect example of that. You know, people aren't giving you gifts because they have to, although sometimes they're still obligated to make the cheap one and you give it away and it's just someone else can like it. But for the most part, gifts, what, are, 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 what surrounds gifts is sentiment. There's a relationship there. A gift is given, not out of obligation. See, God doesn't work that way. God is never obligated by his creatures. God can only declare his creatures justified of a freely given gift. A gift freely given, not a wage justly earned. God will owe no one anything. This is how at least we view God. That God is absolutely sovereign and the salvation that we've received is entirely by grace because he doesn't have to save it. He doesn't have to, he's not obligated by anything we do or say. Salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. It is a gift resulting from the love and mercy of God. It's not earned. And so the second thing we see is that justification is freely given. Justification is freely given. Verse 5. And so the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness. The great 4th, 5th century preacher John Chrysostom says, For a person who had no works, to be justified was nothing unlikely. But for a person richly adorned with good deeds, not to be made just from these, but from faith, this is the thing to cause wonder. And to set the power of faith in a strong light. I mean, imagine someone who is outwardly, morally upright. For them not to be considered righteous because of that. That's the flip side of this whole argument. It's one thing to say that the person who doesn't have good deeds is declared righteous by God out of God's mercy. It's another thing entirely to say that the person who has all these righteous deeds is still not considered righteous by God. God is pointing them to faith. God is not obligated. And here's the point. Here's the point of it all. If that's how God deals with Abraham, then that's how he deals with us. That's Paul's point. He's telling his Jewish audience, look, if God considers Abraham righteous, not because he's a perfect law keeper, or he's a, he does good deeds, or even because he's circumcised, 
Well, that's how he deals with all converts. That's how he, he's not just a paradigm example of obedience, he's a paradigm example of conversion. Of what it means to come to God with nothing in your hands. Nothing. And receive righteousness and be justified as a gift from God that he freely gives because he will not be obligated by anything, nor can be by anything we do. Righteousness that Abraham received excluded works, and our righteousness is neither the result of works, but faith. Drop down to verse 9. This tension is revisited. He wants to wrap up this whole argument. So I ask you, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. You might be hearing all of this and saying, so wait a minute, this entire discussion about justification by faith alone has been completely blown out of proportion. There's really just an argument going on between Jewish and Gentile Christians. That's all it was. It doesn't say anything about whether a person needs good, good works to go to heaven or whether a person can be saved without obedience. Isn't that the real issue? Maybe you're thinking. When we look at verse 11 and it says, and this is, this is to me what Summarizes it all. He, Abraham, received the sign of the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. When Abraham finally gets circumcised out of obedience to God in his seventies, by the way. Boy, talk about commitment. In his 70s, the circumcision he, he has, which is a sign of his covenant with God, is really just a symbol of the righteousness that he had that he already had by faith. And the implication for you and I is when we think about what God thinks about us in our moral failings or moral victories, our moral righteousness is lived out of the fact that we have already been declared good with God by faith, by His grace. All of our good deeds, all of our righteous acts, all of our moral righteousness is not maintenance, you know, repairing a leaky ship as we as it you know needs maintenance or as it breaks down. Our acts of righteousness and good works and obedience are a seal of the justification and the righteousness we've already received by God before we ever did anything obedient to God. Before we ever obeyed in any way. It's all of grace. It has to be. That we receive the righteousness that God accepts and considers someone as justified entirely by faith and not by what we do. And this knowledge liberates us for good works. It liberates us for good works. When you believe that everything you're doing 
entire salvation and relationship with God hinges on every single act, it actually paralyzes you. It does not encourage you to live holy for God. It paralyzes you. I remember being up, getting hired in the early 2000s as bivocational ministry. And I, I got a job with a, a home builder. And, um, and they had this massive development community. And 50 of the homes had jumped on a lawsuit because California had experienced crazy rain, crazy rain season, El Nino season. And these brand new homes were leaking like crazy. And it wasn't because they were shoddy. It was just California homes were not just, like, just not built with sand kind of rain that other parts of the country are. They're stucco, wrapping paper, sand, all these things. And so when I, when I took on this, this project, I had just got hired and I was afraid. I was so freaked out that I was paranoid. I was calling my boss every five minutes. Hey, here's the situation. Here's what I want to do. What do you think? I was afraid about making the wrong decision. And one day he called me to the office and he said, look. He said, um, I can't have you, Jordan, calling me every time you need to make a decision. What's going on here? And I said, I'm afraid. I just, I kind of broke down. I said, I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. He said, look. He said, we hired you because we believe in you. We, we, we're with you. We're behind you. You're going to make some mistakes. For the most part, do your job. Do what you got to do. There are times that you'll mess up. And some of those mistakes will even be costly. But look, just know we're behind you. And we've given you the freedom to make certain decisions on your own. And some of those mistakes you'll have to, you'll have to deal with. But we're with you. You're not, you're not walking a tightrope here, Jordan, where we're going to fire you any moment. And that knowledge... That knowledge that I wasn't going to be fired and let go and can any second because of some mistake I made was totally liberating for me. It completely changed the way I interacted on my job and it completely made me such a, such a better worker knowing that. I could be free to do a good job. I could be free to focus on certain things and not focus on other things as I saw fit. And in the same way, this knowledge that God counts us as righteous, that we have a right relationship with Him, it frees us to do good works. It frees us to live godly, holy lives because we know that that relationship with God is secure. If that relationship wasn't secure, it would be exhausting. Every single day, living in a way that... Okay, you're not... What did I say? What did I Right? That's paralyzed, it's bondage. But the freedom to know that we're right with God. God loves me. I can live and live out my life in obedience to Him. I can grow in faithfulness. It frees us. And so this message of justification by faith alone, it's just not some archaic doctrine from 500 years ago with some you know, irrelevant um, cultural and historical circumstance in Europe with the Reformation, it has real-world implications for the way we think and live and feel and live our lives every single day because we rest in the confidence that by faith, not by what we do, we're right with God. He loves us. Let's pray.